0: Welcome back, creeps. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Good. (laughs) Good. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to another episode. We are on H.H. Holmes Part Two. I don't think I have any, like, interesting news to report or anything like that. Do you?
1: No. Oh, my shrimp costume came in.
0: Yes, it did. We'll say it's now a shrimp. For Halloween. Yes, for Halloween. Last year you were a taco.
1: Shark. That taco was a year before that.
0: All right. Do you have a tarot card for us?
1: I do. Today's tarot card of the day is ten of wands. All the things you've let pile up are dragging you down. When we get stuff done, it boosts our energy and fires up our momentum. So start tackling that to-do list today. This might mean delegating tasks or crossing things out that really aren't that important to you. Clear out the energetic clutter in your life and prepare to be revitalized.
0: Wow. I feel like that's really fucking telling me to get the finger out and just. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'll telling look... us all. Yeah. This week was actually pretty busy, though. Like when I sat back and thought about it, I did those photos and stuff that had been like really bothering me because there wasn't a there wasn't a deadline or anything but i had meant to do it like a couple of weeks ago and then with everything that had happened it just took ages to actually get around to doing it so
1: yeah it's
0: finally done so i was able to concentrate on this so yeah i i like that card
1: all right well tell me about hh films
0: oh yeah okay
1: (laughs) why we're here
0: (laughs) why we are here so I do need to add another source to my list from last week's episode, and that is H.H. H. Holmes, The True History, The True History of the White City Devil by Adam Seltzer. Now, this book, I think, has a lot more details to it, but it was presented as like a shocking new twist to the story of H.H. H. Holmes. And while there's definitely some interesting differences, I haven't really like come across anything like jaw-droppingly different. According to the author, though, like he really went nuts trawling through old newspaper articles and firsthand accounts from the time. And there's definitely, like I said, a lot more uh, like additional tidbits and stories that just that show just how like actually insane Holmes was. Mm. But the essence of the story is more or less on point as as far as I can see. So now I'm kind of bouncing between The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Depraved by Harold Chechter and H. H. Holmes by Adam Seltzer. The one nice thing I will say about Seltzer is he was actually just a tour guide, not just a tour guide, but you know he was a tour guide in uh Chicago doing like a tour specifically about H. 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 Holmes oh, okay. around the city. And so he was like, "Yeah, so in between stops, I wanted to have like random bits of like stories to tell people." So that's what spurred on his thing. So. He's as close to like a an on the ground source as we can get, I think, okay. in this day and age. And I, I do think that it's the most recent publication about Holmes, but particularly the stories from his college days, like that whole chunk of his life was a lot more thorough in this book. We knew that he had just barely gotten by for the most part, but apparently the professor's barely allowed him to even graduate. And there had been allegations made against them from women attending classes at the college and like a local hairdresser or something. Now, we don't know exactly what these accusations were, but they were said to be severe.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, severe back then could have meant promising to marry them and then not. Oh, okay. He was, after all, still married to Clara Lovering. This was something that would have stopped him graduating, though, if the professors had proved it. He managed to worm his way out of trouble every time, obviously. But supposedly, as he was graduating, diploma in hand and shaking the hand of a professor who had stood up for him in one case, he told him all of those things that that woman had said were true.
1: Wow. For
0: no reason other than to see the man's reaction. He then, like, later wrote to the college asking for, like, um a personal reference because he was going to go and be a missionary in Africa or something or, like, help out over there. But he wasn't at all. He was just writing to the doctors just for the fucking fun of it. Wow. Yeah. And a little trigger warning here.
1: What a piece
0: of shit. Oh, absolutely piece of shit. And a little trigger warning here because this is messed up. But an- another trade of homes that Adam Selzer really drove home was just how comfortable he was at handling dead bodies. Apparently he would take pieces of corpses home with him for further studies. And I think for shock value as well. Mm -hmm. A woman whose house Holmes had boarded in, with other college students, told a horrific story that as she was cleaning his room one day, she was trying to locate the source of a particularly bad smell. So she looked under the bed and saw a dark object. When she managed to get it out... She realized that it was actually the body of a baby.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. She was horrified. I don't know what his reaction was, but I know that at this time, medical cadavers were scarce. Professors trying to teach new doctors were resorting to grave robbing themselves. So maybe he genuinely was just trying to, you know, practice and study, but very fucking bizarre. Yeah. Either way, like, just reading it was terrifying like I don't you know, know
1: something tells me he wasn't
0: I don't think so either. I think this was just a weird obsession that he had. Like remember he specifically moved colleges as well to get better educated with dissecting. He had moved to University of Michigan because of their dissecting classes. Interesting. Yeah.
1: So do you think maybe like this was just like a scarce body thing? So he's like, okay, this is all I can get my hands on is just the baby. Or do you think at some point he was anticipating? He's like, you know what? I'm planning to do all this fucked up shit. So I might have to run into dissecting a baby. So he's like, let's do that practice now, I guess. I don't know.
0: I, I, I don't know. The, the impression I get is that he was just so intensely curious about the human body.
1: I see. Okay.
0: But not in like a, an educational way, like just in a, I wonder. Yeah, you know, yeah. He was just, he thrived in cutting up bodies. It's all speculation.
1: How strange because, okay, well, I guess we'll get into it. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, it, it that's it. Like, it, it is all speculation. But the woman who found the baby mm-hmm. was horrified and like, was afraid to go back into his room for weeks after yeah but she didn't kick him out from what i can see so i don't know whether he like just talked her around or was like you know oh well i am going to be a doctor or something
1: well i mean you know i mean he had like his away with words i'm assuming
0: yeah i mean he was he
1: could talk his way out of anything yeah
0: another thing that i found out was that holmes was just a little bit cross-eyed
1: Really? Yeah,
0: and therefore had a hard time looking people in the eye. Which is strange because in all of the other sources that I would read, it's like he had this intense stare that just wouldn't let you go. Whereas this book keeps referencing his wonky eye.
1: (laughs) Now I keep... (laughs) I have it (laughs) I know this particular animal is not cross-eyed, but there's this blank stare looking chicken... That now, when I hear like if if I ever hear you mention his intense stare again,
0: you're just gonna picture this chicken. The
1: chicken's name is Hey Hey. Let me show you this chicken. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, essentially, that's what I'm picturing now as well. So anyway, back to where we left off last week. A.O. Jones had just set up shop only to be put out of business by Holmes a few months later after opening a newer, shinier pharmacy directly across the road from the old one which he had sold to Jones. Right, right. Isilius T. Connor, Ned for short, took a job as manager at the jewellery shop in Holmes's building for a weekly wage of $12 plus room and board for himself and his family. This was November of 1890. Ned's family consisted of himself, His wife, Julia, and their little girl, Pearl, aged around three at the time. It was well known that Ned was punching way above his weight with Julia, and she also knew this. She had married him out of spite for his parents. For her parents, it seems like. She was described as a handsome woman, full-figured, and almost six foot tall. Oh, wow. The, quote, feminine ideal of her day. She was only 18 when she first laid eyes on the 20-year-old Ned who had opened up a watch repair slash jewellery shop in Davenport, where Julia's dad had owned a grocery store. Ned is described like Toby from The Office, basically. <laughs> Harold Schechter literally said, she must have seen that Ned had a sort of sweetness. But then again, so did Milk Toast. <laughs> okay, no matter well, What w- is
1: Milk Toast? I
0: have no idea. Very okay. bland. I'll look it up later. Quite sweet. Okay. No matter what he did, though, he just couldn't seem to make a decent living from his shop anywhere. Like, they literally moved from town to town over the next 10 years or so and just hated each other a little bit more as each day went by.
1: Mm.
0: When they moved into the castle, as it became known, Ned was essentially cuckolded by Holmes. Soon, Julia and Holmes were having a pretty blatant affair. It comes across as Ned was the only person in the building that was unaware. And the building or the castle, was essentially its own little community now as well, with staff living, working and eating within its confines by now. Customers noticed how openly close Holmes and Julia were, even just as they worked. Julia had been hired on as a clerk in the drugstore, and Holmes taught her how to keep the books too. Ned's sister Gertie, um, I can't remember what girl Gert- it was like Gertrude something or other, but yeah, Gertie, she moved to Chicago not long after Ned and uh, Julia had moved into the flat and she lived with them as well in the building. But Holmes became infatuated with her too. She was only 18. He even offered to divorce who who is at this time living at the house in Wilmot with her mom and dad and Holmes's kid. Mm-hmm. That timeline is a little bit confusing, but regardless... One day, Gertie comes to Ned in tears, stating that she should never have come to Chicago in the first place and that she was moving back to Muscatine. Muscatine, which was where they came from. Refusing to tell Ned why. Now, Ned just assumed because she was said to be like seeing somebody like nearby or something. So he was like, look, I don't know what the fuck happened. Things obviously went south. Yeah. But it was kind of assumed that it was Holmes' doing. Like he had made a pass at her or something that she really didn't, wasn't comfortable with. And then she died shortly after moving back. Like so
1: bizarre. Totally
0: unrelated. Like it was natural causes, but like she was only 18 or 19 at this point. Yeah. Just adds to Ned's most unfortunate tale. And obviously I'm skimming the story at this point, but eventually people even started telling Ned their suspicions about Holmes and Julia. I think he might have already known, but just wasn't thinking about it because he was finally making a somewhat decent living at this point. And when Holmes approached him with an offer to become the owner of the store, he just like he couldn't refuse. Maybe Julia would see him as the big shot now, or maybe he could turn around and say, I told you I could be successful. We'll never know. But the offer that Holmes gave him was tainted. Like all fucking offers with Holmes.
1: yeah. Full of taints,
0: got it. Yeah, full of taint. Holmes told him that he could buy the store on credit and pay $6 a week for it. Kind of like a private mortgage situation. But Holmes was going to increase his wage from $12 to $18 a week. So Ned wouldn't even notice it. He would just be the owner now. Mm -hmm. How fantastic. He could call the shots and look after the day-to-day running of the business. Holmes even set up a meeting with an insurance agent to talk about life insurance because now that he was going to be so successful, his family would need, you know, in case anything was to happen. Now, Ned didn't take the policy, fortunately for him, but he also found that being a big shop business owner didn't change Julia's opinion of him. He also found that day-to-day duties included talking with angry creditors calling to collect payments on mortgages that were taken out based on the contents of the store. Which were also purchased on credit, I'm pretty sure. So he was... Holmes was borrowing based on what he had acquired. But the things that he had acquired, he had bought based on borrowing from other things. Yeah,
1: it's like buying something on credit with a credit card and then paying your credit card with the credit card.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. But when Ned approached Holmes to ask, like, what the fuck is this all about? Because he was like, I'm sure there's been some sort of mistake Holmes assured him that this was just a necessary part of all and any successful businesses and that he would just have to learn how to deal with it. The sale was final and that was it and all about it. Sometime in the spring of 1891, Ned and Julia had a final blowout argument. Ned spent the night sleeping in the barbershop downstairs and he heard Julia pacing back and forth all night. He left the following day abandoning his interest in the store i'm not sure how that worked out yeah legally wise no idea but he got a job in downtown chicago for a few weeks hoping that julia would come to her senses again i don't know whether it was just a sign of the times like you know divorce was not really an option
1: not it was more like like an afterthought really
0: kind like yeah maybe like
1: oh all right let's separate but you know, and then they move. It, it's that's what it sounds like. It's like people separate, even though they're married, never take care of the divorce, and just move to another state and start up a family somewhere else.
0: Well, with Holmes, yes, definitely. But with Ned, I think there was like a little glimmer of hope that Julia and Pearl would just come and live with him and like come to their senses, and they would just live a happy life. That didn't happen, obviously. And eventually, he left. And yeah. Did, he legally divorced and got remarried and tried to get custody of Pearl, but never managed to. But with this danger and wrongness of his affair with Julia gone, so was Holmes's lust for her.
1: Uh, he just wanted something he couldn't have, basically.
0: Yeah, like the illicitness of the, of it all. Julia was also never happy being his side chick. And like, they knew that Murta lived, you know, just a little bit away and all. So Holmes would, like, promise them, oh, as soon as, you know, Ned gets divorced from you, I'll divorce Myrta and we'll live happily ever after. But obviously, as we know, Holmes was full of empty promises. He would agree to whatever she wanted if it meant he could, like, just prolong a wedding and just get her off his back in general. Because, as well, like, this was a public affair now. And just like Myrta and him had been, like, snipping at each other in the store, now Julia was fucking doing it. Yeah. So in November of 1891, she informed him that she was pregnant. Uh-oh. So Holmes could prolong marriage no longer. But he did have one condition. He would perform an abortion on Julia himself in the basement. He was well practiced. Like he had, he assured her that he had done this many a time in college for all the other um, students and stuff. Like he was the go-to guy, he told her. So after some back and forth... Holmes eventually convinced her and they agreed on a date. December 24th, 1891. What a lovely way to start a Christmas Eve tradition. The story gets pretty dark here. That's just a little warning to everybody. There's various accounts of how the evening played out. Julia is said to have put Pearl to bed, but Pearl was supposed to be quite a handful. I think she actually, um, like probably in this day and age, She was a kid who suffered with like ADHD or some sort of nervous disorder. Yeah. Because even as a three, four and five year old little girl, she was said to have like mad mood swings and stuff. But anyway, Holmes eventually gave her a sleeping aid in the form of a rag with chloroform. Oh. Yeah. Julia was not aware of this. Julia had actually joined her friends in the neighboring apartment, Mr. and Mrs. Crow. And they decorated a tree for Pearl. Like, it was just a lovely Christmas Eve. They were all excited and talking back and forth and like, oh, you know, Pearl's going to love this. The crow said that Julie was in high spirits and spoke of an upcoming trip to Davenport for her sister's wedding. She told him that she was just waiting on a train ticket in the mail because her sister was actually marrying somebody who worked for the railway. So he was like, I'll cover your the cost of your trip out here. She told him that Holmes said he had a whole bunch of gifts for Pearl and something very special for Julia herself. So she was extra excited to wake up the following morning and bring Pearl into the crow's house to see this lovely, freshly decorated Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. The following morning, the crows waited, excited to see Pearl's reaction to the tree that they had decorated for her. They waited and they waited, but by 10 o'clock, they had to go catch a train and meet some friends. They left the door unlocked and a Christmassy note for Julia and Pearl. But when they returned at 11 o'clock that night, they found the apartment untouched. She was never seen again, but Holmes kept up the illusion that she was still alive for almost a year after. He would pretend to be trying to track her down and even wrote to her parents asking for her whereabouts. All this kind of stuff. Like, this I picked up from the Adam Seltzer book. Like, there was a lot more evil fucking hijinks to him. You know what I mean? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I don't know. For me, this was like the creepiest end of things.
1: So they were both missing.
0: Yeah, neither of them were ever seen again. Okay. Julia went down to the basement. Never seen again. Never seen again. But last week we mentioned one of Holmes' more involved employees. Okay, you kind of had three employees. There was Charles Chappelle, Benjamin Peitzel, and patrick quinlan so charles chappelle he had a skill that would prove pretty handy to Holmes. skeletal articulation so i don't know if that's the official name for it but basically he had worked in the same building as a medical college and learned how to strip a corpse of its flesh and prepare and prepare the skeleton for display in a classroom or doctor's office remember we were saying there was only one source for these types of things back then yeah So in January of 1892, Holmes brought Chappelle to a room in the castle which contained, stretched out on a table, a partially dissected female cadaver. Hmm. Chappelle explained that, quote, considerable flesh had been taken off already. Holmes offered $36 for Chappelle to finish preparing the skeleton and within a week, the Hanman Medical College were the proud owners of an almost six foot tall, female skeleton oh no again the timeline here is a little bit sketchy but harold schecter would definitely have us believing that there was a that this was of course the unfortunate julia connor right as well as that the burned bones of a young child possibly around six years old were found in the basement of the building years later whoa and it was something that holmes was very familiar with was at that time He knew how to destroy bones to the point where they could be useless to people trying to identify, you know?
1: How the fuck did he know that?
0: He had a lot of experience in dissecting and...
1: That was included in the course?
0: I guess, or just something he had picked up along the way. I honestly don't know, but he had his very own kiln in
1: the basement. Oh, right, right, that they were laughing at.
0: Yeah, yeah. When they
1: were building it, yeah.
0: Like, what a fool. So anyway, the other of Holmes's trusted employees... Mr. Benjamin Peitzel, as I was just talking about. He was once said to be a very handsome young man. Six foot tall, strong jawline, muscular, and a devoted family man with just one weakness. Alcohol. He was a hard worker when he could stay off the drink long enough, but holding down a job was an issue. So he, like the Connors, had spent about 10 years dragging his wife and all of their kids from town to town before eventually landing in Chicago and working for Holmes. Carrie and him had had six children but sadly lost one to diphtheria before he even turned two. So, five children by the time they got to Chicago. By November of 1889, however, his natural good looks had given way to the hard life of a troublesome alcoholic. He was missing teeth, His nose had been broken, and he just had that look of hopeless hardship about him. In 1892, he found himself at the Keeley Institute in Dwight, Illinois. Now, this was the flagship institution that would eventually go on to have over 200 institutes throughout the United States and even globally. The 1890s was a time of, like, miracle cures, and Dr. Leslie E. Keeley, who had invented Keeley's Cure assured everybody that this was a surefire way to cure any man of alcoholism or drug addiction. It was known as the gold cure because gold was one of the main ingredients. This concoction, also known as the barber pole, because it was red, white, and blue. Okay, that's what the gold cure was. Patients would have this stuff injected into their arms three times a day while undergoing a four-week treatment plan. The Institute's had a recovery rate of 50%, which is a lot better than zero, and I think was the only option that people had back then. It was so popular that I think Minnesota, there was a state that offered to pay for this, like or give at least a loan to the person that was suffering from alcoholism. So if you kept getting arrested and put in the drunk tank, you could go and avail of this like basically free trip to the Keeley Institute. Like you would pay it back eventually, but it was no credit kind of thing. The actual injections consisting of gold, alcohol, strychnine, and God knows what else left the patients in a slightly sedated euphoric state, which I think just relaxed them while what was actually helping them out a lot was the fact that they were away from bars and enabling environments while also actively engaging in group therapy sessions. So in some like aspects this very backward sounding institution was like actually a very positive thing for people you know
1: yeah it kind of sounds like the early stages of someone with like i know suboxone is not for alcohol it's for opiates but it kind of sounds like you just get like a strip of suboxone and you go and have therapy and you stay away from yeah those environments
0: like essentially that's what it was like the, it's
1: like alcoholics it's like na but what's the boxing.
0: yeah so literally the Keeley institute was the basis for a lot of modern day facilities and addiction groups not necessarily the barber pole concoction that they were like yeah. shoving into people's arms but the other aspect of it so it was like that 50 percent of people that managed to stay off the drink it was obviously a blessing for them oh and also sorry real quick One of the side effects of this weird injection was like slight amnesiatic qualities. Basically, people would just become really forgetful. (laughs) So uh, particularly in Dwight, Illinois, the post office there would just get all these letters from the people attending the Institute Trying to write home and tell their family, like, oh, I'm doing really well and stuff like that. But they just have like a blank envelope, (laughs) no address, or they'd just be like missing lines and stuff like that. Yeah. So poor things. It was like a little epidemic in this town. Yeah. I think it was a temporary effect. Anyway, Holmes had sent Peitzel there, seemingly out of the goodness of his own heart, but also because he had dreams of coming up with his own miracle tonic to make millions from. And he did, kind of, he had his own gold cure. It was called, like, the Silver Ash Company's cure or something like that. But he never really marketed it. So people, like, it's on record as a company, so it's just assumed it was another one of his, like, swindles. And he would also go on to sell, like, Holmes's Miracle Tonic, which was just water from this well that he had dug through the basement of the fucking building, where the gas company had taken out that like miracle gas thing yeah (laughs) so he was left with a gigantic hole from tapping into the city's water main or gas mains and so just kept digging found water and sold that sold it he kind of flavored it i think with a vanilla thing and added some other little bits and pieces and yeah sold that to people as a miracle cure for i mean probably like the athletic greens that i've just bought now (laughs) you know anyway Peitzel returned temporarily sober in April of 1892 with tales of a beautiful woman, Emmeline Segrand, a stenographer, tall, blonde, and lovely, even lovelier than Julia Connor had been, and she was only 24. Peitzel's description of Emmeline intrigued Holmes so much that within a week of his return from the Institute, Holmes wrote to her, offering her $18 a week, to be his very own private secretary. She accepted because at the Keeley Institute she was only making $12 a week, so she'd be a fool not to. Anyway, she left the Keeley job in May of 1892 and rented a room in a nearby boarding house only a block away from Holmes's castle. But she didn't live in the castle. This is how the story goes. Anyway, Holmes himself said that he had actually discovered her at what I can only describe as a secretary store. Sort of like a temp agency where young women with the right qualifications could go and apply for work. He said he walked in and just saw her there like sitting on a shelf or something, I don't know. And he was like, this one, I must have her. (laughs) That's according to Holmes in his own words. Regardless though, Holmes and Emmeline had been seen gallivanting around the town and certainly around the building. One of the residents said, quote, The relations between Holmes and Mr. Grand we not strictly those of employer and employee. Uh-huh. And other people like I think a postman or a parcel delivery person.
1: He was like, yeah, they're fucking.
0: Like, <laughs> I saw them kissing one day. <laughs> Apparently, anyway.
1: While the other guy's like, well, they're not. They're yeah. Man, they're fucking.
0: They're fucking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're fucking in there. <laughs>
0: yeah. They're clapping cheeks. Anyway, he had even bought her like a bicycle. Now, this was again another one of his swindles. He would buy, he would,
1: did he buy it on credit?
0: Yeah. He would buy these bicycles and just sell them off. So all of a sudden, like people all around the Englewood area were buying these lovely bargain priced bikes directly from homes who was just ripping off the actual shops that were selling them. Yeah, because it's like, well, there. I
1: don't have the bike.
0: Yeah. So him and Emmeline would go uh, like cycling through the parks on weekends. Remember, this was a new sport back then. So it was really, it's like the equivalent of us going one wheeling you know, through the park and stuff. I
1: thought you were going to say, like, bmx thing.
0: No, like I something. mean, this is like the OG bmx <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They would go to the theater in the evenings, enjoy lovely dinners at trendy restaurants. And there's a lot of controversy over whether or not Emmeline had actually been involved with Holmes like that. She supposedly never stayed overnight in the building when Holmes was there, like... Any night she stayed in the building, Holmes was, you know, I'm out of town that night, but I think they were actually just quite good at covering their tracks. Mm. Similar to the affair with Julia, I think Holmes got his kicks from all the sneakiness rather than the actual affair. Emmeline was his secretary too, so she knew that he used all these various aliases when it came to business. And she referred to him herself by different names, depending on who she was talking to. So H.S. Campbell, for example, was the name that the building was registered to. While talking to other people, she would say, Oh, it's Mr. Belknap. And Belknap was Holmes's wife's maiden name. You know, and Emily had also met uh, Mirtha Belknap, Holmes's wife, Mm -hmm. in her house. Like Holmes had taken her there. Yeah. But people were very involved back in the day. And so the boarding house where she was staying originally. The woman didn't approve of her going out at night and all this. So she would say, oh, well, I'm going to meet my fiance. And she would call him like Mr. Phelps or something. Yeah. But Mr. Phelps was the alias that Peitzel had used when he was checking into to the fucking Keeley Institute. So there was some sort of co- um, like that's where the controversy comes from. People are like, well, was she having the affair with Holmes or was she having the affair with Peitzel? Yeah. But Peitzel was like not a good looking man at that at this point, you know, and not very confident as opposed to Holmes, who was all of these things. Yeah, he could
1: charm the pants off of anyone.
0: Exactly. I think this was Holmes's way of like making it a kind of a joke because he had obviously told her, well, this isn't actually Peitzel's real name. So let's when you're telling your friends and family, tell them that my name is Phelps because that actually is my real name. And so he told her that he was also the son of a lord in England. Okay, Robert E. Phelps. So when she did tell her friends and family about it, her new, older, but very successful fiance, she would only refer to him as Mr. Robert Phelps. And she had told her younger sister that they were going to go back over to Europe on their honeymoon. They were going to travel all around and even visit the English lord that was his father. So all these plans were being set in stone for around December. Around October, Emmeline had learned that she had these distant cousins that she had never met, but they were living in Chicago, and I think he was trying to like put up set up some sort of family tree. And so she invited them over to see her husband to be's lavish building one evening. Her fiance was not actually there at the time, but she gave them the tour, and she was so clearly enthralled by this Lord's son to which she was betrothed that her cousin, Dr. BJC Grand, who was actually the person who came up with the idea of flag day. Random little t- tidbit. He just didn't have the heart to tell her that this place was a fucking dump.
1: Yeah. Okay. Wait, so was she, she was telling her family like, this is the guy I'm going to marry. But knowing that he was still married to mirtha Yeah. Okay.
0: Very similar to Julia.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And as well.
1: But like Julia didn't have any or that we know of. Delusions of like she knew what it was. She was like, This is an affair, and it's going to stay an affair. Oh, oh no, but she, oh no, never mind. You said she wanted,
0: yeah, at right, initially when like Ned was still in the picture, but yeah,
1: yeah, forgot.
0: The building was not the palace of splendor and refinement that it was made out to be by most accounts, even by the standards of the time, it was an absolute dump. To a more trained eye, it was clear that Holmes didn't have a clue about designing a building and it used cheap, poor quality materials anything he could to cut costs because he wasn't paying for it anyway but funnily enough the description that we all know this three-story beast of a building wasn't even technically true when the building was officially completed and open for business it actually only had two stories and it was not a hotel there were businesses on the ground floor while upstairs, Holmes had his office and all of the other rooms were not actually hotel rooms, but long-term rental rooms, like flats, apartments. One of them had like five rooms to it. like. And the idea of turning the building into a hotel was an afterthought and was never fully carried out. Adam Selzer says that the third floor was really only added on as a lure for potential investors, which kind of dispels the rumor that there was hundreds of tourists who came to stay at the castle only to never be seen again. Now, I mentioned last week that the World's Fair was going to be going on in Chicago. That's why Holmes came up with this brilliant idea of opening a hotel, or potentially opening up a hotel. But the fair had opened its doors around the time that Emmeline and Holmes' affair was taking place, and a lot of people came to Chicago to see the wonders of the fair. It was the site of the world's very first Ferris wheel, which was America's answer to the tower built by Gustave Eiffel, which had been erected for the previous World's Fair in Paris in 1889. It really was an amazing feat of human innovation. And if you want to learn more about that, definitely read The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. But I'm only talking about it because the huge influx in people brought with it a huge influx of crime. Naturally, Mm -hmm. people are shit. (laughs) Young men and women ran away from home and showed up at train stations all over Chicago and nearby, unaccompanied and gullible, just waiting to be taken advantage of. Madams would literally just hang around and look for young women who seemed a bit lost. And they'd be like, oh, I'll show you where you can come and stay. Look, I won't even charge you for the night. I'll feed you. I'll do whatever. And then all of a sudden, they're prostitutes. Uh. Okay. and this happened over and over again. And the people of the time were not shy about it. Like they knew there was one, I guess, like main madam who Eric Larson talks about briefly, like she would go around. I don't know whether it was a car or just a really big horse drawn cart, but it was like had white enamel, yellow wheels like this thing was a pimp mobile in the 1890s. And she was openly this woman who just ran a huge brothel at the time. She was one of the wealthiest women in the area. So so anyway, when Holmes's crimes were discovered, the, quote, murder castle was thought to be used as a kind of a scapegoat. You know, like this was a few years afterwards, but the police were basically able to say, oh, well, that's what happened to all these people. You know, we problem solved. You know, all these people that came to the city and went missing. This is where they all were buried.
1: Oh, OK. That's
0: kind of the story that came out when in actual fact it wasn't even a hotel that was taking people like nightly visitors.
1: Yeah. So those are all like cold cases, really?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Like but the fact is that like Holmes had been broadcast as this murderer of over two hundred people, you know, when in reality it was closer to I mean, much fewer than that. The third floor was basically just a mirage of a hotel. Yeah. If that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Emily's cousin, Doctor Seagrand, was possibly one of those people who would have seen right through Holmes's facade of successful businessman had he met him that night. And I think we mentioned last week that someone who definitely did see through Holmes's fake exterior was his wife, Martha's great uncle, John Belknap.
1: Right, right, right. Said so that he's not worth anything.
0: Yeah, he just he had a feeling yeah, even yeah. before he met him. So his mind was kind of made up. He didn't trust him. But he saw the effect that Holmes had on Myrta and even Myrta's mother, who just thought the world of him whenever he managed to pull himself away from his business and come and visit. But Holmes did manage to work at least some of his magic on Jonathan Belknap, because when he asked him to lend him two and a half thousand dollars to build a new house for Myrta away from her parents, he signed the paperwork. He was like, yeah, sure. Like, I'll pay you the money back. Don't worry about it and then Holmes went back to Englewood and forged the signature on another document for a further two and a half thousand dollars yeah like basically the same day from what I can make out now Holmes insisted that Mr. Belknap come and see his castle he wanted to assure him that his investment was sound he was like I promise I'll pay you back I'm just waiting on all this stuff to come through and like liquidity and assets blah 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 business
1: business business yeah.
0: Belknap, numbers yeah <laughs> Belknap really didn't want to go. He fucking hated Holmes. Like, he he couldn't think of anything worse than spending an afternoon with him. But eventually he agreed. I think just to shut him up, he's like, fine, I'll come with you. (laughs) He was very unimpressed by the tour. This man noticed the dodgy craftsmanship and the even dodgier design. But Holmes kept insisting that he come up to the roof to see the new hotel section. He kept pushing and pushing, but Belknap refused. Now, construction had only just begun at this point. So Holmes was saying, look at what it's going to be. Like, you'll see all these views. You might be able to see Jackson Park where the World's Fair was is going to be open. And Belknap eventually got to the point where he was like, I'm not going. I'm too old. I can't make these stairs. I can't make it up all these stairs. But in truth, he was actually just terrified of heights. Right. So, But after this like kind of awkward, forceful end to the argument, he felt he couldn't say no when Holmes offered him a room for the night. He's like oh well look I'll tell you what let's go have dinner you can stay here we'll get the train back to Wilmot in the morning but Belknap was uneasy and he couldn't sleep he was a countryman not used to all these city lights and the noises of trains so he lay there in this strange room that was just oddly lit waiting for sleep when suddenly he heard a key in the door of his room and he called out to see who it was but he heard shuffling there were two people and one was rushing off, and eventually, Patrick Quinlan, the third of yeah. Holmes's three trusted employees, just told him that he wanted to come in. <laughs> he was like, it's just me. I'm like, I'm sure he made up some sort of lame excuse, like I just need to check the, the
1: I don't know the bed sheets. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but Belknap refused. Eventually, Quinlan left, but I don't think Old Man Belknap got much sleep that night. And soon after, he discovered that Holmes had forged his signature. Holmes managed to worm his way out of it. It was only later that Belknap realized that if he had gone up on that roof, the forgery never would have been found out. Yeah. So his fear of heights potentially saved his life that day. But back to Emmeline. According to the Lawrences, who lived in the building and had become quite friendly with Emmeline. Her love for Holmes had started to wilt by December of 1892. She had heard and scoffed at a lot of rumors throughout the town that he was just a shady con man and all these creditors and stuff. And Ned Connor himself had even warned her at one point. He came to the building one day to be like, Holmes, you're getting me in more trouble. He was still signing like Ned Connor's names.
1: Wow. To
0: things after Julia was gone. And stuff. Yeah. So anyway, he called to the building one day. Holmes wasn't there, but he got talking to Emmeline, And he did say, like, yeah, she was a lovely looking girl and all this. And he kind of knew what was going on. He was like, look, this man is no fucking good. Get away from him. But she had on her rose colored glasses. And she had even given Holmes her $800 in savings. He was like, give me, I'll look after this for you. You know, and it was supposed to be an investment and something to do with property either way he just kept putting her off and putting her off when anytime she asked for it back so she told Lawrence she told Mrs Lawrence this night that she was going to be going to visit some friends for christmas and she was really looking forward to it she been she had already been telling all her friends and family of her plans to wed her lavish new fiance but now she was talking about possibly just moving back or even taking up her old job in the Keeley Institute mm-hmm. now i don't know if she had portrayed that in her letters But this is how she was talking with Mrs. Lawrence. She had talked this situation up so much that it was probably a little bit embarrassing now like, you know, to go back to her family and be like, oh, actually it didn't work out. Yeah. You know, but anyway, the wedding to Mr. Holmes was planned for the first week of December. Holmes had in fact gotten her to fill out all these envelopes for formal wedding announcements in November. They were going to be sent to her closest friends and family immediately after the wedding presumably so that they wouldn't have to worry about such things when they were on their European honeymoon. It's like, "We'll get married, I'll send these out straight away and then we'll hop on the boat or whatever. It is thought that Holmes had asked her to fetch something from his safe on the evening of December 6th. The safe which he had had Ned Connor climb inside one day and scream and bang as loud as he possibly could just to test it out, just for curiosity's sake. And Ned, at the time, was like, what the fuck? Okay, but he did it, and then Holmes got in and showed Ned just how soundproof this thing was. So from the outside, you could barely make out the muffles. The muffles? The muffled screams. When Emmeline, affectionately known as Emma, was inside looking for whatever he had asked her for, the door swung shut. The vault was, of course, airtight, And I really don't know just how true this next part is, but years later, the police said that they found a perfect footprint etched into the enamel of the door of the safe. This could have meant that Emmeline, presuming that it was her footprint, had gone into the vault barefoot and also that Holmes had poured a chemical on the floor that would have essentially eaten up the oxygen in the vault quicker, which Emmeline would have stepped in and then possibly kicked the door, leaving a forever footprint.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, this seems a little bit far-fetched, but a quick Google search brought up that pyrogallic acid does, in fact, soak up oxygen and is hazardous to the skin. So I'm not a chemist, but Holmes was at the end of the day. So he would have known exactly what chemicals he needed to do this. Yeah. I have no way to completely debunk this, as awful as it sounds. But regardless, Holmes said it took her hours and he sat outside listening.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: Yeah even with the aid of this mystery substance. That's awful. And on December 17th, 1892, Emeline's family and friends received her handwritten envelopes in the mail. Inside, they found a card printed with a simple inscription, Mr. Robert Phelps, Miss Emeline Sigrand, married Wednesday, December 7th, 1892, Chicago. On December 7th, her hometown newspaper printed... Miss Seagrand weds Robert E. Phelps. The bride, after completing her education, was employed as a stenographer in the, county in the county recorder's office. From there she went to Dwight, and from there to Chicago, where she met her fate. She is a lady of great intelligence, and has a charming manner and a handsome appearance. She is a lady of refinement, and possesses a character that is strong and pure. Her many friends see that she has exercised good judgment in selecting a husband and will heartily congratulate her. Wow. Where she met her fate. That's such an <sighs> odd choice of phrase, like, especially to you use especially it in an announcement. Now. Yeah, now. Yeah. So we can only assume that Holmes just had a little giggle at that.
1: Oh, he it's... wrote that.
0: We don't know for sure. But that's what. This is Holmes covering his tracks.
1: Yeah, I see. And
0: also having just a little laugh, basically. And Mrs. Lawrence did ask Holmes, like, where Emily had gone. But he would only reply in short answers. She's gone off to get married. I don't know who the man was. Some traveling businessman she had met somewhere.
1: Well, they they do say, like, if you want to get away with a lie, the less details that you give, the more convincing the lie it is.
0: Yeah, exactly. But... Mrs. Lawrence also said that the day after she had last seen her, about 7.30pm, Holmes came out of his office, which had been locked all day, with only himself and Patrick Quinlan coming and going from it. He asked two men who lived in the building to give him a hand bringing this trunk downstairs. It was a new trunk, about four feet long, and Holmes begged them to be careful with it as they carried it down. They loaded it onto an express wagon and it was hauled off unceremoniously. On January 2nd, Chappelle was again given the corpse of a female whose upper body had been stripped of almost all its flesh. He quickly got to work and a few weeks later, the LaSalle Medical College of Chicago purchased a beautifully articulated skeleton. But Holmes kept up the charade of not knowing what had happened to Emmeline, just like Julia. A trunk full of her possessions showed up at her hometown and her family took that as a sign that her new husband was going to Buy her all new things when they got to Europe, and she didn't have to take all this stuff with her. But they did notice that the trunk wasn't exactly packed very nicely or with any real care. Holmes also told Mrs. Lawrence, who much later claimed that she was suspicious of him the whole time. He told her that Emily was due to call in this day, but I think this was in January. He was like, Emily's calling over. I need you to get her to sign these papers. I know she's going to come in and say hello to you. Just make sure she doesn't leave without saying, without signing these papers for me. It's very important. But of course, she never showed up. Right. And he even pulled off a similar stunt. And he even pulled a similar stunt with Emmeline's parents through a letter. He was like, hi there. I'm sure you're aware that your daughter has gone off to be married to her husband and live happily ever after. But she was my secretary and therefore I do need her signature on these very important documents. This is what really throws, shows the true psychopathy of the man. Yeah. You know, and like these were his his trophies almost. Yeah. I feel like, and just knowing that the parents were like, because the parents would write back. It was the same with Julia.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They were like, well, we really thought that you knew where she was. We And he would offer to help. He was like, you know, I'll even pay to get, you know, such yeah. and such. But no, he was just, this was him languishing in in his...
1: How strange. Yeah. This is the equivalent of like someone killing like a person and then going back to the scene of the crime.
0: It's exactly what it is, yeah.
1: It's exactly that, yeah.
0: Dragging it out. Basically. And so that's where we're going to leave off this week. I'm going to try my best to wrap this up next week, but honestly, I don't know if we'll we'll be able to. Next week might actually be um, just a titillating True Tales because there's still a lot going on here. And Halloween and stuff like that. So just hold on to your cheeks. For the end of this series.
1: You know I sometimes wonder. Why H.H. H. Holmes. Is a topic. That's visited. Even so many years. Later. Because when was this 18. The 1890s.
0: 18, yeah.
1: It's 2022. You know what I mean. And. Like just a fucking insane story so far. And I know you're probably nowhere near like done, but it just goes to show like, you know a lot a lot of people say, "Well, it's never been this bad, you know peop people are really nasty nowadays. People are really sick nowadays, yeah, but this just goes to show. They've always been sick. It's just they've been under the radars because there's lack of laws and protections and you know, things that
0: That, and like now we're a twenty-four hour news cycle, we've got social media, so we hear about these things instantly. But even the whole like, well, why is everybody obsessed with true crime now? They weren't. In the eighteen nineties when he got found out, like people went fucking nuts trying to find out every little detail of the story, making up all these stories and that's why it stood the test of time because all the remember the yellow journalism yeah all these bullshit stories like 200 bodies uncovered in the you know the it, world's fair murder hotel and I'm glad this.
1: that you touched on that because it's so true like it literally is a topic that sells
0: yeah no that's it, it.
1: it's a topic it's a topic that sells news outlets fucking articles Things basically, that yellow journalism is literally clickbait today. Yeah,
0: exactly, yeah.
1: Clickbait today. That's all it is. And that's probably why a lot of people are like, man, like these days, like everything sucks and, you know, you get a bleak perspective on reality, but it's not. It's because the only thing that sells are outrageous or horrific or any of those kinds of stories because feel-good stories, charity stories... You know what I'm saying? Those yeah. don't garner clicks. No, so that's they, why people don't, fo- that's why news outlets or fucking Facebook or whatever, they don't focus on those things because it doesn't sell. It doesn't bring clicks, you yeah,
0: know? no, fear sells. That's, fear yeah. sells. So that's why, anyway. It's always sold. It's also why there's a lot of, you know, potentially made up stories about homes in particular. Now, when saying that, all of these books that I've, been like nuts deep in have only proven that the man was actually scarier than i initially thought yeah because i thought he was such a blown out of proportion character that he it was like i you know probably killed someone by accident and that was it yeah but it's these little tidbits he actually you know what he reminds me so much of btk when it comes to the like messaging the people afterwards and all like and you know like that's basically what BTK did with the cops like he had this correspondence he would drag shit up out of nowhere so yeah he, he's just i think the perfect embodiment of a psychopath yeah in every aspect like
1: and that. and that's another thing it's like um a, like the media, like i want to say like the one media that i consumed about the topic was i don't know like now that I'm thinking about thinking about it, it was like very out of touch, because I was like the way it was presented to me, it was like, oh well, he's just you know into mischief, you know, like, but mischief and murder, they're not they're not synonyms. Yeah, they're complete yeah. mischief is what my cats do. Yeah, you know what I mean.
0: Well, it comes back like, to the good and bad rascalities, right?
1: It's like, and that's even like not <laughs> that's so dumb Murder but like
0: bad riskality
1: that that so stupid why would you say <laughs> that <laughs> um but like you see what i'm saying like the way i consumed it because of the way it was presented to me i took it as oh he's just doing mischievous shit but no this guy was fucking insane he oh, was yeah. disgusting he was just an awful excuse of a person yeah so crazy
0: the perfect example of the innovative successful businessman of the 1890s you know nothing will stop him from getting his fortune
1: yeah that that's true that's true
0: but anyway
1: but, you know it makes you it makes you think like um if jeff B- if there was no like if social media wasn't what it is now, if there was not cameras on every corner. Oh, yeah. Would like, would Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos be a fucking H.H. H. Holmes?
0: Well, okay. Not to get too deep at this late stage, but look at Epstein's Island.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Perfect, perfect example. example. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you said that.
0: Anyway, we're not going to get down into that rabbit hole right now. We have to go, go to the hospital and visit our relative. Yes. um, But yeah i hope you guys are enjoying just rate review share this with your friends if uh you know if you got if you can if you have if you have one friend share this with them yeah we appreciate it very much and um yeah we will see you guys next week okay bye Bye. sorry if you can hear that pork chop has joined me on my lap because she's a needy bitch these days and will not leave me alone She's literally pouring into the mic.